Hey, I'm Lika Sumba, and this is our journey across Africa, navigating the intricate landscapes of business, culture, and global influence from the African perspective. Africa Whisperer, telling authentic African stories in a global way. On this episode of the Africa Whisperer. Yeah, you know, being uprooted uh, comes with trauma, but also comes with opportunity. So in my mom's family, out of 10 siblings, nine, including herself, were refugees, right? And what this means in practice is that, yes, you are uprooted, you live you know, your life behind uh, and you have to start over. But it also makes you very bold, very daring. I have an aunt who uh, started a journey of uh, discovering uh, an entire new world in her late 50s. My own mother later in life after Ethiopia, she started a brand new career in Western Sahara, in Liberia, all of this at uh, after the age of 57, 58, you, you, you see what I mean? It just makes you much more daring. My guest on this episode of the Africa Whisperer has built a career that is parallel to the trajectory of the media business and more specifically Africa's meteoric rise in this space globally. She has worked with some of the most renowned companies in the world, Reuters, Viacom, Disney, Facebook, which is now, of course, Meta, and her current position as the managing director of Sub-Saharan Africa at Spotify. Now, while at Spotify, she has expressed her excitement about the globalization of African music, and she highlights some things I was never aware of, including the fact that there are pockets in the world that don't necessarily have a large diaspora community, like in Japan, but people are still dancing to and listening to African music. But what I loved is that she's so clear about the importance of the lateral pan-African growth of diverse African genres here within the continent we call home. Now, as impressive as her career is, what fascinates me the most was the story of her unique upbringing and her ability to embrace every aspect of her life's journey. Born to Ethiopia to a mom that had been a refugee for 40 years, learning to read via briefing documents that her mom would bring home from work and the pivotal decision to come back home after completing her studies and her tenure in France. For me, Jocelyn Muhutu Remy's superpower is her clear understanding of the power that Africa holds and its potential, not just in theory, but in practice, and our power not just globally, but within as a people. And yes, she thinks in Amharic too. I hope this conversation will open your mind as much as it did mine. Justin, welcome to the Africa Whisperer. I'm so excited to have you on the Africa Whisperer. You, of course, are the Spotify Managing Director for Sub-Saharan Africa. Welcome and good morning. I hope you're surviving the cold of South Africa. Uh, yes, <laughs> I am surviving. It is really freezing cold. Plus, as you know, we have electricity problems. There is yeah. a phenomena called load shedding, <laughs> where the government, or rather the the electricity utility, restricts 
electricity uh, multiple times a day. So that has been really difficult yes. the past few days. But yes, all good. Jocelyn, I really am so fascinated by your career. I think it's just really shown the trajectory of how media changes and the way that you've been able to continuously evolve. Even just the fact that you've lived in so many countries and you've or you've been in different countries for long periods. You were initially born in Rwanda, spent long periods in Ethiopia, France, Kenya, and now South Africa. So you have such a beautiful multicultural and diverse experience. For you, what would you say each country informs about who you are today as a person and professionally? Actually, Lee, I was born in Ethiopia. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so here's the story. I am indeed of Rwandan and Burundian descent. My parents okay. are Rwandan and Burundian. My mother was a Rwandan refugee in the 1950s. Okay. She found herself in Burundi first and then in Ethiopia. And this was as a consequence of the massacres of Tutsis yeah. in the late 50s and early 60s. As you are aware, the genocide that happened in 1994 was the culmination of decades of persecution yeah. of Tutsis in Rwanda. So I was born in Addis and grew up in an extremely pan-African manner. As you know, Addis Ababa is the headquarters of the African Union. Yeah. My mother was an employee there. She was a secretary. And this is something that has really, really deeply shaped my life. Mm. When I was growing up, I have very fond memories of seeing, you know, different African heads of states visiting uh, the African Union. We would uh, climb on chairs, my sister and I, watch the window and see, you know, those motorcades and try to guess who was in it. And we would say, oh, there's Mugabe, there's Kaunda. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, Gaddafi, etc. She worked in different departments. One of them was the human rights department. And she would bring all these documents home for proofreading. And yeah. that's how I learned how to read. By reading, you know, documents about human rights abuses in various countries about the colonial situation in some um, countries in Southern Africa mm. were still in those days under colonial rule. I'm thinking Zimbabwe, mm. uh, Mozambique, uh, Angola, etc. Um, mm. What used to be called, you may remember this, uh, although you're much younger than me, I'm sure they were called frontline countries, right? So, okay. yeah. so essentially this background of... Uh, really being deeply embedded in uh, what used to be called the Organization of African Unity and seeing this work, you know, this dream trying to become reality, uh, not mm -hmm. successfully, is something that has profoundly shaped me. Wow. I'm getting goosebumps just hearing your story because initially I was just thinking, oh, she's got a very pan-African experience because there are quite a few people who've moved about in different places, as you know. Specifically, when you're from East Africa, we tend to move a lot. But now when I hear this and about just, you know, the fact that you learn to read from reading briefing documents and what you and your sister got to experience seeing different heads of state, I guess this leads me to a question I wasn't thinking about. But would you say that this informed what was part of the reason why you decided to go into journalism? Uh, yes, absolutely. We didn't have access to that many children's books, right? So mm. in addition to my mom's uh, documents, I used to read material that wasn't 
really age appropriate <laughs> like uh, you know magazines like uh, Jeune Afrique which you, you may be familiar with yeah and uh, international the you know uh, publications that that my mom got access to from time to time like the time magazine etc yeah uh, again we were really deeply in you know we had a deep understanding of uh, just geopolitics uh, at a very young age uh, that was our life you know um, mm-hmm. the dinner table discussions were about you know uh, coups or which head of state had taken power where political situations so this awareness uh, was just part of our daily lives in addition this was a very troubled time in Ethiopia mm-hmm. when I was very very young at the age of uh, three or four there was a massive coup with the advent of a communist regime under Mengistu Halemariam in Ethiopia. And that uh, brought um, a, a period of several years of deep unrest. Um, you know, we would see uh, bodies in the streets. Um, wow. There was a repression of students who were trying to stand up against this new regime. I remember very clearly when the death of uh, Emperor Haile Selassie was announced. There were just traumatic events that really impact me till today. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, I often tell the story about how one day when I was uh, really very, very young, less than eight, I went to visit my mom uh, at her office. And Mm -hmm. from the office on the seventh floor of the African, the OAU, as it was Mm -hmm. called, you could see the biggest prison in Addis from her window. Oh my right? gosh. So one thing I used to do is just look, you know, watch the prisoners going about their activities. And mm. these two prisoners, I saw them sort of detaching themselves from the group of prisoners they were with. They, then they run across this field, jumped the fence and entered the compound of the OEU. <sighs> went down the stairs and to, to see what, 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 what that was about. Security people run towards uh, these two men. I remember so, so clearly their fearful eyes. They had, you know, torn clothes, uh, mm. feet, etc. And of course, this was a diplomatic compound. And uh, the, the Secretary General of the African Union at the time, his name was Eden Kojo. He came down to see what was going on and realized that these were Somali prisoners. And without going into the detail, there was a war at the time between Ethiopia and and some Somali rebel movements. In short, seeing these men and then hearing later that they had been executed for for having tried to run away. I mean, it's the kind of trauma... That that shapes you, that makes you understand things that are way, way beyond your age. Yeah. Later, when I got a scholarship from uh, the OAU to study in France, journalism was a very natural field yeah. to go. Wow. Different people have had kind of traumatic experiences in Africa. Let's let's focus on the continent. And some people decide that they're going to leave and they won't come back. But you get a scholarship, you go to France, and you've actively been involved in the media story in Africa. So what informed your decision to be like, I'm going to come back? And what keeps you here? But, you know, uh, in addition to the trauma, there was also, you know, the wonderful experience of Pan-Africanism in our daily lives. So, yeah. My mom was a single mom, and when I think of her friend 
group, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, the ladies she used to hang out with, etc., the, the, who used to visit us. I, I mean, there was literally, uh, let's say out of 10 of her best friends, there were 10 different African nationalities. One of them, uh, Aunt McQueen, she was Ugandan. Yeah. I so well, she, she would bring, you know, Matoke home. Uh, she had a Senegalese best friend. She had a Somali best friend of Indian descent. That's how I also got to understand that, you know, we have such links with other continents. Mm. It was looked completely Indian, yet she was Somali. Uh, people from Mauritius, of course, from our home country, Rwanda, Southern Africa, etc. So really, the this combination of Pan-Africanism in our lives, plus the trauma, plus the understanding of our history, uh, the, the geopolitics of our continent, all of that made this dream of Pan-Africanism not just something you read, you know, in, in the biographies of Kwame Nkrumah or uh, Julius Nureyev, but just the daily reality, right? So yeah. much later, I had to make the the choice that you that you mentioned: Do I stay in France and build a life there? and leave all of this behind? Or do I uh, come back to where my heart is? And, and really, there was no question that that it was the right thing to do. Um, well, actually, when I met my husband, it was even a condition <laughs> <laughs> for our relationship to go forward. Um, uh, so yes, uh, in the 20s, we went to Nairobi and uh, started our adult life there. Now, Jocelyn, just one last question about your, your personal background and so forth um, before we go into your professional uh, journey a, a bit more. So one thing I'm, I'm a little bit curious about is that because uh, you're of Rwandese and Burundian descent and you grew up in Ethiopia, or you were born in Ethiopia and spent a bit of time there. You're obviously now based in South Africa. You lived in France, all of that. How many languages do you speak? Uh, <laughs> well, um... The language I speak, the language I think in is Amharic, right? Uh, wow! My mom lived in Ethiopia for more than 40 years and she cannot make wow. a decent <laughs> sentence in Amharic still, right? Um, but, you know, the reason I speak Amharic as fluently as I do is precisely because we were not um, expatriates or diplomats, right? My mom uh, was a refugee, as I uh, mentioned earlier. And, and we lived with um, common Ethiopians uh, in, in neighborhoods that were really very modest, right? Mm. Uh, and actually, I, I can say that that is another aspect that has really shaped uh, who I am and it, it impacts how I see the world even today. It is the vast variety of socioeconomic backgrounds in, in my life, right? Um, mm. There was, on the one hand, you know, the most abject poverty that I got to interact with in my neighborhood. Mm friends from, you know, from the hood. Then uh, uh, on the other end, uh, I went to a school where there were all kinds of people, some really, you know, very uh, um, modest background, but also the son of the president, uh, Mm -hmm. sons of ambassadors, etc., etc. So on uh, on the one hand, I was very embedded in this Ethiopian culture uh, because, well, we this was my mom's way of integrating in the country that had welcomed her. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, you know, the, seeing a very different uh, type of, of of people, you know, much yeah. privileged, etc. Uh, something that else that I'd, I'd like to mention is also the impact 
of living, despite the fact that Ethiopia was um, uh, really under a very brutal dictatorship, in a very international environment, because precisely because it was a communist country, we lived very, uh, you know, alongside people from Eastern Europe, for example. Uh, wow. Uh, Russians, uh, Bulgarians. Uh, uh, my, our doctor, our family doctor was a, a man from Bulgaria. Um, and all these people came there because they felt, you know, they, they had been invited there, etc. because mm. it was that, you know, um, communist world uh, brotherhood, right? Mm, mm. So there was uh, that too, plus other uh, people for, from India, for example. We had Indian neighbors. Um, so, yes, so that mixture of Pan-Africanism uh, and deep relationships with other parts of the world, all of this without ever uh, setting foot outside of the continent or even outside of Ethiopia. I, <laughs> I only started traveling uh, when I was... 13, and it was to go to Burundi. So I only discovered the rest of the world uh, at the age of 19, right? Not before, not before that, yeah. What I love about you sharing the story, and thank you so much about your mom being a refugee, is that there's so many perceptions that people have about refugees. You know, there's so many perceptions of how limited their lives can be. But your mom being a refugee in an African country where people may think that there's there's going to be no post-opportunity, I think it's just, it's just so fascinating. I've never heard anything like that in my life. So I'm sure that even that experience, like you've said, it's informed so much of who you are. Yeah, you know, being uprooted uh, comes with trauma but mm. also comes with opportunity. So in my mom's family, out of 10 siblings, nine, including herself, were refugees, right? And what wow. this means in practice is that, yes, you are uprooted, you leave, you know, the, the, your life behind uh, and you have to start over. But it also makes you very bold, very daring. I have an aunt who uh, started a journey of uh, discovering uh, an entire new world in her late 50s. My own mother, later in life after Ethiopia, she started a brand new career in Western Sahara, in Liberia, all of this at uh, after the age of 57, 58. You, you, you see what I mean? It just makes you much more daring. There's nothing that yeah. that can stop you from you know taking on an opportunity. I remember I remember that she applied for a job in East Timor. You you think why? What do you know about the? Yeah, she knows nothing. But does she care? No. Why? Because uh, you carry in your heart your background, and, and it just makes you yeah daring like that. You know, you just go. Oh gosh, I, I really love that. I think that's so powerful. I think. So many people are just going to be really touched by that because it's it's a perspective that we never hear. So it's amazing. Jocelyn, now your personal life story and your family background and everything is so fascinating. But equally as fascinating is your career journey. So you've worked at some of the most powerful companies in the world, Facebook, Disney, Viacom, Reuters, and now at Spotify, obviously. And what's really evident is that, you know, in all of these different positions, you have amplified African stories and narrative. I guess my question is, what do you think it says about the opportunity for Africa um, from your career perspective, now that we're seeing all of these different major companies having their interest in Africa, what do you think it, it should say to us as Africans about what is here, about the opportunities? It, it says a couple of things. First of all, that the narrative 
is shifting. And we should take credit uh, for that. The narrative is shifting because about 15, 20 years ago, some Africans spoke out to denounce uh, the, the narrative that was prevalent then. I'm thinking of somebody, uh, may his soul rest in peace, uh, like Binyavanga Wanaina, the writer, the Kenyan writer. Mm. I uh, was in Kenya at the time when he wrote his essay, uh, a famous essay, uh, mocking as, as some media spoke about Africa. I, I can say with some confidence that uh, the early 2000s is when the you know the, the perception started changing yeah. and there are a number of reasons for that one is because we spoke up mm. two is because people uh, you know african media or african journalists drove uh, the, the you know that kind of change at reuters for example we had a program called Africa Journal mm. and uh, a TV program that we distributed across the world. And one of the mandates of that show was really to 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 show something else that was much more nuanced, that was surprising for the rest of the world, that demonstrated the progress or showing uh, Africans that are empowered, that are driving change mm. themselves. Right. Yes. So, so so one element is uh, narrative change that Africans drove. Another is uh, economic change. In the past uh, 15 years, we've seen tremendous, tremendous growth on, on the continent. You may remember those years where we had six, seven, eight, nine, even double digit percent uh, GDP growth in many of our countries. Mm. So that is uh, another reason. Uh, but of course, it's also the demographic uh, shift that is happening where um international firms are seeing the opportunity of uh, the African consumer as we enter the middle class, as uh, connectivity improves, uh, as we get much uh, more strongly connected to the, the rest of the world, right? So these are the things, I think, that explain the interest we're seeing in the past decade uh, from international firms. And let's not discount internal lobbying that people of African descent have made to about mm awareness within their firms about the African opportunity. I can think of uh, one of my former bosses, Alex Okosi, who convinced Viacom, the group, that it made sense to create MTV Africa and yeah. uh, and brought that here. Uh, and that had tremendous impact on African music, on mm. African media. So uh, that also plays a role. At Facebook, this is something that I saw uh, quite strongly and really um, if you read my my posts when uh, when I announced my new position at uh, at Spotify, I mentioned this element at my previous employer, where we saw people of um, of African descent and Africans really pushing the African agenda very very boldly and succeeding at it and getting noticed, mm. getting the investment mm. they were advocating for. So yes, you are right. Uh, this agenda uh, has followed me throughout my career, throughout my life but also throughout my career. And now just your position at Spotify, it, it's such an important role strategically being a woman, being an African woman, being an African woman that's had this fantastic life experience. What is also very clear in our conversation and when it comes to the choices that you make in your career is that you never just take anything. There's always a reason why you're drawn to something. So for you, this position at Spotify, what drew you to it? Well, um, 
I saw during my interview process that this international firm that is uh, that is now one of the major players in the streaming world that there was a very deep understanding of the African opportunity. Mm. So that really, uh, I, I felt, was extremely attractive. And I also saw that there was perfect alignment between my personal purpose and the work that uh, I was being asked to do. Mm. What is this work? It is uh, simply to um, e expand considerably the, the streaming technology on the continent. Mm. It, it's to work on the internationalization of uh, African music and taking it global. This obviously, these two things are uh, driving African progress mm. perfectly. Uh, so it absolutely made, made sense to join Spotify. And even when you talk about the internationalization of African music, one thing that nobody can deny is just the role that Spotify has had in basically this next phase and explosion that we've seen of African music and just really changing, let me say, the pockets, <laughs> for lack of a better word, <laughs> of African musicians, you know, especially I can imagine during COVID, it really played such a huge role. How would you say that Spotify has impacted African music even more globally? And secondly, how would you say that African African music has impacted Spotify as a business? Well, well uh, I can tell you that various African genres are really taking the, uh, over the world. Afrobeats, Amapiano, yeah. Afropop, yeah. Uh, and even, you know, genres that are l less well-known, like Gengeton in Kenya, are getting yeah. national audiences. And we, yes, we do play a big role in this. It, it's our one of our primary mandates, something that really drives my team. Yeah. We have different programs. We do different initiatives around playlisting. Our playlist, the African Heat, is one of our most successful ones. Mm. We have programs uh, like Equal, where we promote female uh, African talent, uh, Fresh Finds, where we look for unsigned artists. We also have marketing activities, like we've put countless uh, African artists on Times Square in New York on massive boards. Mm -hmm. We make sure that uh, when there's new tracks, new genres, uh, that they are playlisted in markets where we have uh, a big fan base like the UK, the US, uh, France and Germany. Uh, yes, so we really work at driving this and we are helped by a number of things. Uh, first of all, uh, our massive African diaspora plays a role. And just uh, even beyond our diaspora, um, uh, our music is resonating beyond in countries where we do not have such a big diaspora, like Japan, for example. Oh, wow. Uh, yes. Recently, actually, we published uh, a documentary on, on YouTube that explains this, where you see uh, Japanese dancers and people in the music industry there talking about uh, Amapiano, for example. Oh, my gosh. Of course, social media has played a massive role in spreading the, 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 this kind of music, our music. Uh, last year, the song Love Nuantiti was, was a top track for several weeks across charts, uh, in, you know, globally. So, uh, yes, really this uh, globalization uh, of African music is a primary mandate, as I was saying. We want our artists to, uh, to grow uh, beyond our continent. But you know what? Another massive uh, mandate is 
pan-African growth, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to just rely on international audiences. Within Africa, there's still a lot of work to be done. There's work that started many years ago, uh, even before we launched in Africa, with with other uh, players in the media industry to bring East and West together. Really, my dream is for a world where, you know, you go to a club in uh, Lagos and you have a a track by Saudi Soul from Kenya, you know, where Mm. people actually know the lyrics and maybe an Orwandan star, you know, emerging and uh, being played in Morocco and vice versa. That is also another mandate of ours. It's not just about taking our music global. It's growing uh, within our African continent too. I really love that because it's so exciting seeing the international growth, but even just the importance of the pan-African growth. I think that is so key. And music can almost play diplomatic roles, you know. Um, Music like food can bring people together around the continent. So I think that it's so powerful and it is important. But I guess the question with the growth, how does the internet penetration impact the business, you know? Is there anything in place or is that kind of reliant on the powers it may be? Yes, connectivity is one of our biggest challenge uh, across mm. Africa. We are seeing um, at the moment uh, about 50% only penetration, even in a country like uh, Nigeria, 40% in Kenya, even though the penetration of smartphones is uh, has advanced very, very quickly, there are still people, many people, who don't have access to the internet. Uh, however, I strongly believe that we are at a tipping point uh, at the moment in the next few years, we are very likely to see a major shift in this. And that is because a lot of efforts have been made by African telecom companies, by international firms to build undersea uh, cables, to work on that last mile that takes connectivity into villages. So, uh, yes, uh, connectivity is an obstacle right now to the very rapid growth of uh, of streaming. However, even within the current conditions, there's still a lot of room for growth. So, so we're very, we're very, very excited and very uh, confident that this shift will happen. Mm-hmm. One thing is for sure: the African consumer is very switched on and and, a, and an early adopter of trends that we see elsewhere. The world is becoming so much smaller. Uh, understanding of technology. Is, uh, is, you know, happens in a much faster way. And just to go back to your previous point uh, around globalization, one thing that really fascinates me and uh, that I'm excited about is the South-South or emerging markets <laughs> sort of uh, yeah. coming together. I remember seeing a survey of uh, African Gen Zs and, and reading that uh, one interesting trend is that, you know, in, in the past, let's say 20, 30 years ago, there was a dichotomy between are you inward looking as in like only your country or Africa as a continent or very Western focused. Now this dichotomy is, is not there anymore. The, the kids are much more uh, global. They can be as interested about, you know, something happening in Brazil or uh, Korea as they are uh, about about the West. So that, that dichotomy is, is really reducing. Uh, and about, uh, you know, Latin America, where you have a strong black community in current countries like Brazil and Colombia, those links with Africa are really getting so much stronger now. Uh, you may have seen uh, a collab between the Colombian star 
Malume and Revani, the Tanzanian yeah. artist. So that is also uh, another beautiful trend. So when we say globalization, you don't just mean towards the West. We're also talking other countries of the South, of the global South. That's incredible. It just really makes you realize how the power of the internet, the power of the digitization of media has really changed a lot. Um, and it's made, you know, even platforms like Spotify, you've literally given artists not only the ability to be able to connect internationally but and locally or pan-africanly but also to get audiences that they perhaps never would have had because for the longest time there was always an issue of like well how do you get there <laughs> now you don't even have to move and everybody could know who you are so i think that that's um fantastic just um, an example uh, african students uh in Europe, uh, I was speaking to some recently, I just amazed at going to European clubs and hearing Amapiano and Afrobeats dominating the uh, the club, right? In my days, <laughs> mm. this would never have happened. So never happened. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and something else, um, the talking about, let's say, Amapiano and Afrobeats, how quickly have Nigerian artists adopted Amapiano? I mean, it took, yeah, yeah you know, uh, uh, and vice versa. Uh, again, it, things go so much, so much faster yeah. into breeding the, in, the collaborations. Another aspect of Spotify's business would be around podcasting. Where do we sit in Africa when it comes to podcasting and, and what is Spotify's investment? Can you share any intel about what podcasting looks like in Africa from the perspective of content creators and the, from the perspective of people engaging with podcasts? Uh, this is something that I'm uh, really terribly excited about. We are at the very early stages, right? And for us, we see this as another way of promoting and growing and supporting African voices. We do this in music. We are determined to do the same in talk audio. There is a thriving yet small podcasting industry in Africa. And of course, you are mm. a member of it. <laughs> we are um, setting up a team uh, to specifically focus on the development and the growth of our podcasters. Um, we have, there, there are pockets of uh, talent that are already um, showing so much promise in places like Nigeria with a, a podcast called uh, I Said What I Said. Uh, in Kenya, there is one that I love called mantalk.ke, where they talk about fatherhood and being a, a modern man. A mod modern African man, right? Yes. Uh, in South Africa, you you also have uh, really interesting ones. Uh, one called uh, True Crime that tells uh, true crime stories that are, uh, as you know, this is a genre that globally uh, really relates <laughs> well <laughs> in podcast. Yeah. We have this tradition without going into too many cliches. Yes, uh, storytelling mm. something that is uh, big in our various African traditions. Radio. Where we grew up with that has played such a big role mm. development in uh, the transmission of uh, education uh, in campaigns uh, in health campaigns etc and, and podcasting we'd like it to become that too so not just a, a means of uh, you know uh, entertainment or uh, conversation but also education and growth uh, so we recently launched a uh, a fund 
to support some African podcasters. And we'll develop many other initiatives. I spoke to colleagues in the U.S. to bring an education program for podcasters in Africa. Yes, that is our next phase. We're very excited about it. We see incredible potential. And you know what it means is that if you're a young person in Accra, where you live, in Rwanda, where I'm from, in Ethiopia, where I grew up, and, and you have things to say, the barrier to entry is now so low. Yeah. You know, acquire uh, some very basic equipment, do a podcast and upload it onto platforms like Spotify. So the opportunities are is massive. Just in closing for this conversation, it really speaks to that. I think it's an old adage that says, until the lion learns to speak, the tales will always favor the hunter. And so with this, Africa, through platforms like Spotify, whether it's us telling our own musical stories or podcasting, we literally get the opportunity to tell our stories on our terms. Exactly. It's really very much about empowerment. And Lee, you may be aware that uh, this is something that drives me in my current job, but also outside of it, I am personally involved with an organization called Africa No Filter in an advisory role. And the role of that organization is really to push a change of narrative. And indeed, this cannot happen until we as Africans they take our own stories in our own hands and not just for uh, people in the West to think about us differently, but just for ourselves to, uh, you know, tell our stories between Africans. Definitely. Jocelyn Muhuti Remy, this has been one of the best conversations I've had in my life. No exaggeration. There was many things I was not expecting to hear, <laughs> but I just love everything about it. I love that your life story is so closely tied to the experience of a few people in Africa. I love the stories about your mom. I love just your experiences and how you've everything that has happened in your life. You've literally turned it for a way of pushing purpose. And I love your career trajectory as well. So thank you so much. And just, you know, we just look forward to seeing just more coming out of your work in general. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. Thank you, Lee. And I must say, I know I've known for many years that you also share the same uh, Pan-African dreams. I've been following your career for many years now. And uh, thank congratulate you. you for pushing this agenda and doing a great job at it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Africa Whisperer. I truly hope that you were as inspired as I was in this conversation with Jocelyn Muhutu Remy. Now, don't forget, if you want to find out any more information about me, Lee Kasumba, go to theafricawhisperer.com. If you would like to find out any more information about my guest on this episode of the Africa Whisperer or any guests that we've had, if you want to give any feedback, if you want to suggest any possible guests that we can have on the podcast, you can still go go to theafricawhisperer.com and don't forget that your ratings and reviews are really appreciated so we'd love to hear more from you and also you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn that's Lee Kasumba L-E-E-K-A-S-U-M-B-A and remember to tell a friend to tell a friend that the Africa Whisperer is here.